the future. So cool, right? All of those amazing new innovations that are going to make life even better. Like, okay, wouldn't it be great if your car could change color to match your mood? Oh, wait, no, to match your outfit. Ooh, I think I would like that. Buick is thinking about the future every day. A future built around you with super smart Buick EVs that can make your life even better. And soothing spa-like interiors that can leave you feeling relaxed and refreshed. Wait, is that eucalyptus? Oh, believe me, the future smells incredible. And it's all out there waiting. So let's go to the future together. Wanna go? Join us at buick.com slash future. Hello, well, Fascinated turns 50 this episode, which as a podcast series is not a lot. But if you think of it as an audio documentary series, well, that actually is quite a lot. So uh, see how I brought it around to the positive? Okay, to celebrate what we're doing is we're making some changes around here. So we will have details soon about how you can subscribe to extra content. We will be making some premium episodes. We'll also be making some two-parter episodes. Now, to give you a taste of this, this is our first two-part episode. We're dropping both parts today. Uh, and what a guest we have to start it off. If you like what you hear, subscribe wherever you downloaded this and you won't miss an episode. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and you won't miss one. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram where you will see pictures of my cat, if that's your thing. If not, don't worry, she won't be mentioned again. Okay, on with the show. Before we go on, I want you to think about UX. UX is user experience. It is the feeling we get when we use an app or a website. When we have good user experience, we almost aren't aware of it. We feel that the app was trustworthy, reliable and even fun. But when the experience is bad, we don't want to repeat it. As we become more reliant on apps, websites and online tools, it is important to get the user experience right first time. UX design is a fascinating career in an industry becoming more important every day. To be a UX designer, you don't need to be a coder. You need to be able to put yourself in the place of the user. You need to understand their story and their expectations and then give them what they want. UX designers are interested in people, in understanding their stories and discovering ways of improving all of our lives. The UX Design Institute offers unique, university credit rated online courses in UX. Now, some of you know that I worked in IT and I actually did a course in UX a while ago and it is absolutely fascinating. The UX Design Institute course is delivered by industry professionals, not academics, which means that when you finished, you are ready to be employed. That is really important because you have to come out of these courses with more than just theory. You have to be industry ready. If you'd like to know more about UX or you're thinking of changing careers, visit uxdesigninstitute.com forward slash fascinated. Hello, you are very welcome to another episode of Fascinated. I'm Gerard Farrelly. My guest today is a man who regularly stared at me from the cover of Smash Hits. He was a one-man boy band, a Rick Astley for the 90s. My guest is Kavanaugh. Oh, 
1996, the pop world was changing. The Spice Girls emerged, Peter Andre peaked, the Fugees came and went, and Gina G had one of the biggest selling records of the year with the UK's Eurovision entry. It was a different time. But the biggest pop moment of the year was from Take That. For much of the 90s, they had dominated the charts and hearts of teens. They announced at a press conference just in time for Valentine's Day that they were no more. Gary, Mark and Robbie had solo careers and then Howard, well, Howard wrote quite a catchy song. And that is where today's guest comes in. The girls and boys who had screamed for Take That needed somewhere to direct their hysteria. And Kavanaugh, who was already in development with Take That's manager, was waiting in the wings. The son of builder Andrew and his wife Rita, Anthony Kavanaugh, had big dreams of becoming a pop star. He met Nigel Martin-Smith when Cav was working in McDonald's, but he wangled himself a development deal. He was a handsome, cheeky kid from Moston in Manchester who quickly became the darling of smash hits. Once he signed his record deal, he set to work in the studio making his debut album. His debut single was to be Crazy Chance, written by Howard Donald from Take That. The song was a funky hands-in-the-air track with Kavanaugh's rich vocals, a stark contrast to his baby face on the sleeve photo. The single was released with great fanfare on the 29th of April, 1996. He appeared on the biggest platform for a new pop act, Live and Kicking, singing live at the crack of dawn on Saturday morning, unnervingly surrounded by buckets of daffodils. Well done, congratulations, welcome to Live and Kicking. I mean, this is probably the first time a lot of people have seen Kevin singing live on our show, which is brilliant. In typical 90s fashion, CD single one and CD single two hit the shelves. But surprisingly, it didn't set the world on fire, cracking the top 40 and stalling at just 35. But Kavanaugh, along with the Nigel Martin-Smith machine, continued. He hit the road opening for Boyzone and delivered a second single in mid-August. Where Are You was a sultry, laid-back soul tune. The PR machine moved up a gear. Kavanaugh established himself as having proper singing chops and a live version of the song was featured as a B-side. He even popped a nipple out on the cover of CD1. And if the nipple didn't sell it, CD1 also featured a brand new version of Crazy Chance. The single did better than the previous one, hitting the top 20. At this point, Kavanaugh was everywhere. The public loved him. He was constantly on TV and in magazines. But despite being one of the best pop singers of his day, he hadn't yet had that hit that the record label needed in order to put the album out. Even though today, a record company would kill for the sales that he was doing back then. At this point, Cav started to get worried. He knew he was delivering the goods in terms of the music and the promotion. He'd even shot the nipple load. Actually, I think I might edit that out. Okay. He'd, he'd even shot the nipple load. <laughs> he'd even got a nipple out. Something that even Peter Andre hadn't done. There was one trick left in their arsenal. 
release a cover version and they really got it right. The next single launched Cabana into the stratosphere. His cover of Shalimar's I Can Make You Feel Good went top 10 and Kavana was at last a smash hit. The single was released just after Christmas on the 30th of December and the whirlwind that comes on the back of a massive hit followed. In April, this was followed by MFEO, which, if you don't know your 90s lingo, was made for each other. Honestly, I used to always think it was me for everyone, but I'm kind of mortified by that now. Sorry, Kev. By this time, Kavanaugh was partying as hard as he was working. He confessed that the night before he shot the video for MFEO, he was at the Brits and that was the first time he had tried ecstasy. MFEO was another smash. And this was followed by, guess what? A re-release and re-recording of Crazy Chance, titled Crazy Chance 97. Nigel Martin-Smith and Howard Donald were determined to make that song a hit. While you would have to question the logic in the management releasing a song that fans already had two recorded versions of, it did actually become a big hit. After Crazy Chance 97, Kavanaugh went away to record the difficult second album and he delivered the follow-up record, Instinct. It was a more confident Cav that emerged. Now a seasoned recording artist, he turned in a mature 90s soul R&B album with some really stunning moments. Front-loaded with the first three singles, Special Kind of Something and Funky Love, he continued that one-man boy band sound, while Will You Wait For Me was a smooth, impressive ballad. The album had plenty of other single choices, but after the third single only hit the top 30, the writing was on the wall, and Kavanaugh started to suspect that maybe his label were about to drop him. Cause I thought you'd always be better And it's hard to let you go Though I know that I must try He knew that career-wise and financially and emotionally this would be absolutely devastating. Things looked bleak until an entertainment lawyer looked at his contract and discovered that he was in for a big payday. After he was dropped by his label, Kavanaugh went to LA and partied hard. He did some work out there, but gradually the money dried up. One of the things he had done when the money started to roll in was he had bought his parents a house. The house was eventually repossessed and this hit Kavanaugh very hard. His battle with alcohol became a problem. So much so that one of the people who pleaded with him to sort himself out was his good friend, Amy Winehouse. When he returned to the UK, Kavanaugh worked constantly. He appeared in Hollyoaks in the City as a contestant on Grease is the Word, which was a reality series to cast a West End production of Grease. He came second, so he didn't get the part, but his newfound popularity from the series resulted in the record label issuing a greatest hits. He then toured in various theatre productions. In 2009, he released a three-track EP called Any Other Way. The tracks on this EP are some of the best he has ever recorded. It's a mature Kavanaugh doing what he does best. It's very obvious from the first listen on songs like Famous and Broken, he is being brutally honest. Who can I run to now? 
In 2013, he was one of the first celebrity contestants to appear on The Voice. Now, I hate this. The Voice have established this really horrible pattern of bringing on really good, well-known singers like Kavanaugh and Denise from Five Star, and then the extraordinarily bland performers on the judging panel reject them. It is reality TV at its worst. He didn't make it past the live audition stage, and by his own admission, he was gutted. Later that year, he joined the cast of The Big Reunion, a TV series which reunited some bands from the 90s. The producers joined some 90s solo artists to make a 90s supergroup called Fifth Story. While this was happening, Kavanaugh's personal life was at an all-time low. From his pop peak in the late 90s, he's now homeless, broke and working in a Manchester cafe. His father had passed away, his mother was battling Alzheimer's and Kavanaugh was living with friends and working in a cafe. During the run of the series, his demons came to the surface. Slowly but surely I lost everything. Within a year I'd lost my house, lost my dad. Um, my mum ended up in a wheelchair, I was looked after her for a year. I was just, you know, I was drinking too much, I was, whether it was food, a lot of drugs, this, that, the other. And um, I went to rehab. But this didn't stop him nailing his performance with the group. Also during the series, Kavanaugh officially came out as gay. At the time, he said his big regret was he never got to tell his parents. Since then, Kavanaugh has appeared on what was by far the most chaotic series of Celebrity Big Brother. He's also released another single, Deja Vu. This past year has been rough on Kavanaugh as his sister passed away. At the moment, like everyone else, he is riding out the COVID pandemic, wondering what is next. A couple of weeks ago, he made the UK papers when he dyed his hair blonde. At the moment, he's finishing off a book about his life, which I cannot wait to read. And if you follow him on Instagram, you'll know he still has that voice that made a generation of pop fans fall for him. And I'm not saying I have any insider information here, though maybe I do. We just might be hearing that voice again very soon. Stay tuned, because Kavanaugh is coming right up. Once upon a time. Fireside is the Irish storytelling podcast. Every week we breathe new life into old stories from folklore and mythology, from the mysterious landing of the old Celtic gods to the epic wars fought by Cúchulainn and Queen Maeve, right down to the petty squabbles between headstrong mortals and roguish fairies. We already have a huge collection available with a new episode every Wednesday. This is not just a podcast for folklore fiends, but for anyone who enjoys a good story. And who doesn't love a good story? My name is Kevin C. Olhan, and I am your host and your fireside bard. Wherever you are in the world, you can always join me by the fireside. Okay, here he is. He is an absolute gent. This is Kavanaugh. How are you? Hey, Gerard. Is it Gerard? It's like it's like the road. So Gerard. 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 That's it. Yeah. Are you? What do you? What do people call you? Do they call you Anthony or Kavanaugh or Cav? Or... 
just say Cav, it's easier, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for this, I mean, unless you know. But oh. my, middle, my middle name is Gerard. Gerard. Ah, right, yeah, that's the English version. So that's why I keep getting confused. Garode, the road, Garode. Garode, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've listened to quite a few of them. Oh, I really enjoyed them. When I've been cooking or in the bath. I, I think I think I just prefer to listen to people that I enjoy. Like I really like their stuff. Right. So uh, I think that that just makes it easy to do. Yeah, I think. Totally. But everyone's got a different or, or sometimes similarish story. That's the funny thing because I'm like, oh, I remember that person. Or that sounds familiar. It's funny because each person has been little bits where I've been like, I totally know where you're coming from. Like the Jan Arden thing. I didn't know their mother had Alzheimer's. Oh I yeah, know, yeah. You know, I mean, that's kind of my story as well, and it's like. That's fascinating. And then you hear, like, the Matthew Marsden. I am your biggest stalker, by the way. You've got <laughs> Matthew Marsden who did the LA thing and then came back, and I'm like, oh, that kind of was me, but wasn't. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Just... And when did it start for you? Like, because you were, you were really, really young when it started. Yeah, I was 16. And is it true you were working at McDonald's? I was working at McDonald's. <laughs> yes, I, I left school with not many qualifications um, because you couldn't really... Get a, you know you couldn't go to college to be a pop star and that's I know that sounds silly but that's all I wanted to be I wanted to be a pop singer um, I love smash hits I buy every two weeks I was obsessed with it and I just wanted to be on the cover of smash hits and I wanted to be a pop singer so getting to the point of McDonald's which has got nothing to do with that is that I, I just there was no job out there that I could really qualify for um, and I had to make some money, so I, I got a job at McDonald's. So you're looking at smash hits. Were you singing? Were you doing any sort of theatre stuff, or were you singing in clubs or anything like that? No, not at all. I um, I had a piano that my auntie gave me. Um, I always had keyboards and stuff growing up. My, you know, I always had like a Casio keyboard or something like that. But I was never um, a singer. I just used to um, listen to songs on the radio or whatever and then copy them on the piano. So I'd play by ear. I couldn't read music. I still can't read music. Um, and But I just I just loved that whole thing of being a pop star. I guess it was escapism in a way. But I just I, I was quite shy in school. I wasn't really one of those performer types. Because it's interesting when you watch your, um, like, interviews and, like, your performances back in the day were very, like, you were so super confident, you know, doing performances on, you know, Top of the Pops or whatever. And then in the interviews, you always came across as quite shy. Yeah. I always felt like I was just doing a pop video or something. I think I spent that many hours in front of the the bathroom mirror, like, with literally, maybe not with the hairbrush, but just doing pop videos so I was so used to I remember when I did my first pop video and the director Phil Griffin he said you you're really good at this he said have you practiced I was like yeah I've practiced yeah <laughs> for 16 <laughs> years mate <laughs> yeah. yeah 16 years um but no I never sang and I knew that I could sing but I suppose I was quite I just used to play songs on the piano and um it's funny because when when I was at school, I think I told you I went to school with um, Saran Jones, who, you know, is now a big actress. and Oh, yeah, yeah. Foster and all the uh, gentlemen, Jack. I mean, of course, Coronation Street. But we was in the same class and the same drama class. And we used to bunk off. I think it was either games or PE. And we'd go to the music room where there'd be a piano. And she was very much into drama and, and she, uh, she, had a, she had a separate... Um, class that she would go to outside of school and we would I would play the piano and she would sing and that was what we would do for an hour 
Wow. He'd be singing in Beneath My Wings uh, in the school music room and I'd be playing along like a young Liberace on the piano. That's amazing. (laughs) It's interesting because when you started recording and stuff, like if you, I just had to listen to some of your first album there uh, this morning Mm. and your voice, you don't sound like a 16 year old. Like you sound like a 30 year old soul singer. Wow, yeah. Like you, you, you really had that rich voice. Like, I mean, it was one of the best pop voices at the time, I think. Wow, thanks very much. Um, I grew up listening to a lot of stuff like that. My sister um, and my brother-in-law got me into, they were always playing soul, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder. Um, my mom and dad, my dad was more Frank Sinatra. Deep. My dad actually sounded identical to Dee Martin. Oh, wow. I looked like him as well a bit. Wow. Um, and so I was used to listening to, at home it was Frankie Lane, Dean Martin, you know, that kind of croon, that lovely old sound. And then when I'd stay with my sister, because there's 20 years between me and my sister, she passed away last year, but there was 20 years between us. Yeah. So when I stay with her and my brother-in-law, it was cool music, it was Roxy music, it was, uh, you know, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, David, all these stuff that I would never have been introduced to as a kid. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, so you've got, got, you got it from all sides. Yeah, I got it from all sides. Yeah, I remember the first concert I went to, my brother-in-law, Clint, took me to see it. And I was still about 12, and it was Talking Heads. Oh, wow. And I was school the next day and they're saying, where did you go? I said, I've been to see Talking Heads. And I'm like, who? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so a really very cool first concert. Right. I mean, believe me, there was a lot of cheesy ones after that. But it, I was, I was, it was... Um, it was interesting to have that in my ear without me. It just subconsciously went in. Not that I sounded like talking heads. I'm just saying that I I was open to a lot of different styles. Yeah, you had a lot of flavours going on. Yeah. And so how did you end up with um, signed to Nigel Martin-Smith? Because like, if you think back to the day, like th- he was the guy. Like You you arrived in Take That's Heyday. Mm. Like They were top of the charts. They were absolutely everywhere. And he was the guy responsible for that. So how did you end up in the same stable well um i i decided that he was going to be my manager i know it sounds crazy and i know it sounds like totally out there basically i i remember knowing that he had and and i remember i remember i was leaving i remember the summer i was leaving school i'll never forget the, the, the i think the july i had my smash hits because i had it all the time and and I said to one of the girls, I said, oh, and take that were big at the time. I knew that he managed to take that and I knew that they were in, that he was based in Manchester. And I just said to one of the one of my friends, um, I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to be managed by him. He's going to be my manager, Nigel Martin Smith. And that was it. And, and, and so I always had it in the back of my mind that this guy was based in Manchester. He had an agency there. And if only I could just get a demo take to him. And I made it my mission to, to make that happen. Um, and the story of how we met was basically, it was purely by chance because me, I'd finished my shift at McDonald's, um, <clears throat> me and my cousin and my best friend, Andrew, we all decided we were going to try and go to a club, okay. right? Because we'd only ever been to pubs, right? It was usually, you're done by half 10, 11, and then you, you get the bus home. We couldn't get into a club. Now, the funny thing is, me and Andrew were both best friends, but we were in the closet with okay. each other. Right? Okay. That? So we're both 16 years old, but we've not told each other that we're gay. But we've known okay. each other that we're kids. All right. Anyway, 
that's going off the point a bit. So anyway, so he picks me up from they pick me up from McDonald's and we go for we say we're just going to try and get in different clubs, right? Well, the football. So we try one. No, you're not coming in. You're too young. We tried two. We had a few beers or so had a few pints. Tried the third one, which was Fufu Lamar, right? Who's the drag queen of the, the North back in the day? He was like the Danny Larue, I guess, of Manchester. Okay. Uh, he had his own club. It still exists. Fufus or Lamars, I think it's called. Oh, does it exist? Anyway, we were this close to getting in there, and they said, "Sorry, you can't get into me," because I must have looked younger or something. Um. So we said, oh, God, what are we going to do? Well, we're just going to have to get the bus home. And then we said, let's just walk five more minutes. And we walked five minutes up the road, and there was a big line around the block, and it just said Paradise Factory. And it was a real mixed bag of people outside. There was, like, a nun on roller skates. There was, um, you know, a, a big, a big tall man. I, 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 just women with a big wig on. It was all different shapes and sizes. And we said, that looks, in- should we try that? So we're never going to get in there. We didn't know if it was a gay club, a straight club. We were quite naive in those days. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we knew that it wasn't your run-of-the-mill club, put it that way. And we queued up and they literally said, you know, this is um, a gay club. And we just said, yeah, yeah, that's fine, yeah. Like, looked in at each other a bit like, uh-oh kind of thing but secretly yeah, yeah. going oh, finally <laughs> yeah like, oh yeah we, we can try it then uh, yeah okay <clears throat> but secretly loving it anyway so we go in there and we're there and remember this smell of bleach saying to andrew why does it smell like bleach and it was poppers of course i didn't know what oh, poppers. right okay right <laughs> <laughs> anyway and so we've got our drink and we stood around and my cousin Sean and then I just I literally it was like slow-mo because I knew what he looked like this guy I knew what okay. I nice looked like I turn and he's in the corner stood dancing with some people and I thought oh my god that's Nigel Martin Smith I need to somehow talk to him get his card or something and I went over I mean I, I don't know if I'd have the boss to do that these days but I just went over and said hi this is he said what's your name we got chatting Eventually, he gave me his card and uh, said, "Come and come to the office. Drop, you know, drop in your tape." Wow! And uh, so that was on the Saturday night. I woke up the Sunday with his card, thinking, "Wow, it really was him. This guy that I've been dying to meet, you know." Yeah, yeah. And um... Uh, I, um, I so hurriedly that day made a tape in my bedroom on on my hi-fi. Um, I had two cassettes that I put together, and I did. I just got on. I just got the Stevie Wonder album, uh, "Songs in the Key of Life." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first song is "Loves in Need," and I really liked that song. And I remember the beginning started with a "Ooh." Remember that bit at the beginning? Yeah, so yeah, thought, yeah. Maybe I can do that with a bit of a cool backing vocal because I didn't have my keyboard; wouldn't plug into the the hi-fi. It wasn't a recording thing. Okay. Anyway. So I did Love's In Need, I whacked it down, tape to tape, I did something else, I can't remember what else, I think it was another song on there, Tab Talk With God, made the demo tape, went down on the Tuesday to his office, and I went up to the reception, there was these stairs, and I said, can you give this to Nigel, please? He's, and she said, oh, right, okay. She said, well, have you seen? There was a big bag of uh, tapes. It was tapes in those days. Oh, wow, yeah, so... 
Yeah. Right? It was all demo tapes, a big sack of tapes with pictures and headshots. He said, she said, you need to put it in there. I said, no. He said, he's told me to bring this. He needs to listen to it. I said, okay, give it here. And that was that. I okay. got the bus home. I got the bus home. And I remember we only had incoming calls at the time because my mum hadn't paid the phone bill. You know, when you oh, just had incoming yeah. calls. <laughs> yeah, right? yes. There was no mobile either. So uh, she goes, um, oh, uh, some some fellas called uh, Martin uh, Martin Smith or Mr. Smith, Nigel. I said, all right, he wants you to give him a call back. And I, I said, right, you need to give me 50p. I need to go to the phone box now and call him. And I rang him. He said, is that you on that tape? I said, yeah. He said, right. He said, um, I want you to come in for a meeting. He said, I can't see you tomorrow. I'm with Lulu at Top of the Pops. Name drop. Clang. <laughs> Clang, yeah, that's <laughs> like you do. I'm like in this phone box on my council estate thinking, what the fuck is going on here? Yeah, yeah. And coming on coming on Friday, and, and that was it. And I went in on Friday, and that's when everything literally changed there wow. and then. Yeah, I left McDonald's and... That must have been pretty, that must have been pretty heavy stuff. Like, I mean, you you are, woman, like, like I said, one minute you're in McDonald's, the next minute you're... You're, you know, you're working with the guy who's down on top of the pops with, you know, Lulu and take that. Right. Mm. And, and how long was it before you got the first record away? Because you, your first one was written by, wasn't it written by Howard from Take That? The first single came towards the end because what, I mean, Nigel was clever like that. He, for the first, he put me on what was called a development deal. So we okay. had to, you know, meet my parents, do all that stuff, you know, um, Sign a deal whereas, you know, I will now develop you. Um, he set me up with a little home studio. I didn't know how to, I knew that I could play, but I then had to learn how to record demos and stuff. Um, and so he really, really took his time with that deal. I mean, I thought it was going to happen overnight. It was 18 months before I, oh, wow. from me to my single coming out. Um, and so... I'd, he said, you, you know, that th- you need to write. He said, that's what you need to do. And I, and I still thank him to this day for inspiring me to do that because he said, you need to write your own songs if you can. He said, because that's where the money is. And also it opened up a talent that I didn't know I had. I could copy music, but I didn't know I could put a song together. So, yeah, so we so eventually there was a bit of, listen, they were going to sign anybody. I, I don't know how much it was to do with me personally. I'd like to think that they liked some some part of my talent, but it was Nigel Martin-Smith. They were all desperate for the next act to come from his stable, you know. Take that was huge. He was the biggest manager at that point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Rables were just with an open checkbook, like – so he, we bided our time. He went, I'm like, Nigel, who? He said, no, not yet, not yet. We were going to sign with A&M, then somebody else. And so we finally, finally signed with Virgin. Okay. Um, and uh, the, album was, the album was nearly, no, no, we'd finished about five, six tracks on the album, four of which I'd written purely on my own. Amazing. Uh, which was like, oh, wow, like, you're actually accepting these. But... Nigel had this plan where he said, look, Howard's got this demo. He's not using it. Um, it might be a good publicity angle to say you've got, you know, you've come from Take That Stable. This is your, and you've written a song. Howard's written your first single. Okay. And that's how that came about, basically. 
And it took a couple, like, you, there was two singles out, out before there was the, the big hit. Yes. And what yes. was that like? Because you've had, like, you've had 18 months in development, you've made the album, and then it's like, okay, this is getting a bit tentative here. What's what's going on? Because the first single, like, the, the, like the first single did really well. Like, for, for today, I mean, that would be a massive hit. And right. the same with the second. Um, and yeah. then I Can Make You Feel Good then was the one that, like, exploded everything. Mm, I mean, I was, to be honest with you, Gerald, I was, um, I was gutted. I mean, I was real. There was so much pressure on me. And I was, I was 17, 18, I think, when that, was I seven? I was seven, 18, maybe, when it came out. And um, we'd done like, everything. We'd done the school tours. We'd done the, I'd done the PJ and Duncan tour as a support act when they were known as PJ and Duncan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, um every show possible live and kicking got the exclusive i was made to sing live at like 8 15 in the morning and just like all this crazy stuff and it went in at 35 and it was like oh god like but just yeah it was hard but they'd invested a lot of money so we had they had to make it work it was like okay so okay. here we go again did the boys own tour many many memories in dublin of course i think would it have been the point at that? yeah the point yeah 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 um because I told you my family's from Dublin, my dad's from Dublin, was from Dublin. So, yeah. I, you know, I love Dublin. And um, again, that was like a ballad. I'd written that, I'd wrote that one on my own, written, wrote, however you say it. And um, that went in at 26. So it was a slight improvement. But I could okay. see that, I could see that everyone was like, right, this needs to, this needs to happen now. We need a hit. Yeah. Right. And I think this was around the October or something at this point. And I remember my A&R lady, Joanne, um, who was amazing. And she said, uh, would you consider doing a cover? I said, well, yeah, I mean, of course. I said, but, and Nigel honestly was like picking out funny ones like Tears of a Clown and just random stuff, which are lovely songs, but just didn't really seem right. You know what I mean? And, so she, Joanne said, look, have you heard of Shalimar? I said, yes, because I know, I to remember, she said, have you heard this one? So she gave me the tape. I listened to it. I loved it. I made the demo of it in my bedroom that night. Um, and everyone liked it. And then it was like, right, this has to be a hit now. Okay. And uh, I think I did every TV show possible. Radio picked up on it. Uh, I think we got Radio 1 on that one. We did get Radio 1, which made a huge difference in those days. Yeah. And what was it like then, like when when you got the big hit? Because you did you did stuff um, like you're talking about smash hits. Smash hits was massive back in the day. And you didn't you do the smash hits tour? Yes. Yes. What was that like to be you know on a bus with a whole load of other pop singers? I mean that must have been that must have been amazing for somebody that was just reading the magazines a year previously. Oh, it was mental. It was absolutely mental, and I'll never forget. Um, we I think I did did I did two. Two tours are one. I can't remember. I think I did one. I think I did one tour. But um, it was amazing because you're with all these other bands. A lot of them that you may have even been a fan of yourself. Okay. Like who was on your tour? Oh, my God. Um, oh, God, he was on my tour. I've seen the tour program the other day, but I, oh, God. I know it was like Boyzone. Was Eternal maybe on it? Uh, oh, wow. Um, I might be my Backstreet Boys, Peter Andre, um, Louise might have been on it. Uh, Steps were on it. 
it was just the ultimate pop. Wow. It was that. You couldn't have got any more pop if you wanted. It was that pure yeah. pop thing. And then there was me. Um, you know, and I think not being in the five runner, and we, we met again obviously later for the big for the the big reunion. But um, we, uh, it was a. I know it's a, some. It's a saying that a lot of people use at the moment. But I, I've I always said it, it, I had imposter syndrome. Oh, of course. You know? Yeah, yeah. Feel like, God, this is really weird. Like, I, I might should I be here? But I was very confident because I, I knew that I was. I knew that I had some talent. But yeah, also, and and you really were like I mean for like your voice you you were you you definitely sounded like you were this so you were a solo artist and it was so funny to see like a kid on his own because you look like a kid that should be in a boy band because right. you you know you were so young and so fresh faced and yet you had this big soulful voice that was just um you know you you, you were so brilliant like oh wow well you can just introduce me everywhere I go from the future <laughs> um, but um. Yeah, and and not having that, I suppose, camaraderie with the with the other. Don't get me wrong, I loved my own space, right? Yeah. I, I don't know what it would have been like to be in a band, but sometimes I think I did miss that. You know, not being yeah. with a just in a group because it was yeah, just well, it's me. Mates, isn't it? Yeah, and sometimes I'd have dancers. Sometimes I, it depended if Virgin would pay, yeah. but. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, getting back to the smash hits, uh, I remember because you know, obviously, I left Nigel Martin Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did that happen? Well, basically, I just remember working really, really hard, and rightly so, I should have been because I had been paid a lot of money, and, and that's absolutely fine. But I just felt like he, you know, this was the guy that I'd kind of, in a way, idolised. Like he, he yeah. made me this he gave me this new life you know he was the Svengali you know and he listen I won't go into too much but he he, he is and we all are to a degree but I, f- I found him quite a complex character um, okay. and, um <clears throat> yeah uh, and, and so I, I wanted his attention a lot of the time and I wanted his approval because I was doing all this tour and I was going everywhere I, I just had me in a tour manager really Ying who's amazing and, and she's gone on to look after Mel C for years now she's looked after Neil Horan um, and you know but she had me since I was 16 till I was like 19 which was my pivotal years really you yeah, know as, yeah. a, as a teenager coming into his own yeah um, and I just sometimes wish that maybe and maybe I want maybe I want maybe I expected too much I just wish that he would have been maybe around more when I was on tour or just called me more and asked how I was doing or I just felt quite alone and, and it got to a point where I felt he'd lost a bit of interest in me. He, he took other people on and and I remember thinking, I found out on the Wednesday, it was the Smash Hits Poliners Award on the Sunday and I think it was me, Peter Andre, Gary Barlow, Will Smith up for Best Male Singer. I don't know how Will Smith was up there as a singer. <laughs> it was nice to be in the category with Will Smith, anyway. And you won it. And I found out on the Wednesday that I'd won it, right? So Tim Byrne, who managed Steps at the time, he calls me up, he goes, listen, I'm giving you the heads up, Cav. You've won Smash It's Award. You're going to get Best Mail on Sunday at Earl's Court. I was performing anyway. He said, but you're going to get the award. I was like, oh, my God. I was in the studio at the time. And um, I think... Ying rang me rather than him and said, oh, brilliant, we're going to do it. You know, 
the theme already had been set. It was superheroes. I was going to be Superman. Spice okay. Girls were going to be like Poison Ivy and Catwoman and all that. It was that one, you know? Yeah, yeah. I remember that, actually. And I remember feeling so like, oh, I just wanted him to, to, to like wish me well. And of course he did great things money-wise for me. Of course he got me some great deals. And I appreciate that. But sometimes you just want a bit of the other stuff, you know, like yeah, yeah. proper guidance, you know. Yeah. And I said to myself, if he doesn't show up on Sunday, because I'd already had some other interest from under management that said they were going to promise this and do that. And I thought to myself, if he doesn't show up on Sunday, then I'm leaving. Okay. I'm leaving if he doesn't show up on Sunday. And he said he was going to come. And on the Sunday, he didn't turn up to the award show. Okay. Um and it was a big deal for me. I mean, you know, that magazine was my bloody Bible since I was 10 yeah, years. Yeah, same here. And to get Best Male Singer, not even Best Male Haircut, to get Best Male Singer and to know it was voted for by the kids and the fans, you know. And I just, and that's, and I remember when I got the award, I remember specifically making sure that I thanked him and I just yeah, said yeah. I was a manager. And I knew that was it then. And, I, and that was the day that I left him. Oh, wow. Uh, and then all hell broke loose for about 10 days because I had to go into hiding. And I had press to do that week in London. So the car that picked me up, the office was calling the driver. Is he in the back of the car? We want to get hold of him. What's he doing? Does he know that he can do that? He can't do that. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't good. And then he wrote me a very serious letter um, just saying what he'd done for me and how disappointed he was. But that was that time. Yeah. You know, done. Yeah. And I'm forever grateful for what he did as well. But it, it, business-wise, definitely, yeah. And when you, that was, you were still on album one at that point, weren't you? Yes. And so, yeah. so after that, you, so you signed a new management deal and then you made the second album. Yeah, that's right. So then I went over to um, Simon Fuller's um, company. He had a, another company called Native, which which was a subsidiary, I guess, right? Okay. Um, and uh, and of course, I'd worked with Absolute before on um, Absolute the producers, you know. Who oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff. I'd worked with them, and they produced. I can make you feel good. So it was a bit of a no-brainer because they said, "Look, we'd love to do the second album, but we want we want to we have to we want to do the whole record." And I was like, "That was fine by me." They just yeah. had all success with the Spice Girls. You know, they didn't have to choose me to work with, but we got yeah. on so well. It was a, it, like the second album is a brilliant record. Like it's so wow. mature. It's so um, like it really evolves from the first record. I mean, the, the first record I think is really good for, you know, they're marking you as the guy that's the same manager as Take That. It's a bit of a Take That vibe. Sure. But you right. really, in your second album, it's just really mature. It's really mellow. Um, there's like there's some great music on it that didn't get released. There's a song, Thank You. Thank Which you. Is just, oh my God, that's a great song. Well, you know, that was the first song I ever wrote. Ever. No way. First song I ever wrote. Yeah, in my bedroom. Um, yeah, I wrote that in, on, in my bedroom. And I thought it was really corny at the time. And then, I, and then it got passed around over the years. It didn't quite work out. And Absolute said, we need to put that on. Oh, that's great. It did well. The old chestnut girl. Yeah, it, yeah. Did well yeah. <laughs> it did well in Asia. You know? Oh, brilliant. In Asia. Yeah, <laughs> on, on Asia to to give you a big hit, you know they're, they're very very supportive. Yeah, and so you so you made two albums, and 
what happened? Like, how did it end? How did like the deal with Virgin? How did how did that go away? Where like what? At what point Sorry. were you? What point were you at when you realised? Oh, oh, this is in trouble here. Right. Well, to cut a long story short, um, and that means you'll be here for another five hours. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, no. My auntie Sheila used to say that. From my she got well to cut a long story short, Anthony, and then you be here like five hours. Later. <laughs> um, yeah. So we made the album in Italy. So a couple of options came up: a studio in Germany or a studio in Italy for three months. Okay. And I was like, well. No disrespect to Germany, but Italy sounds, <laughs> Italy uh, sounds pretty good. Wiener you know, schnitzel, uh, you know, uh, lasagna. So basically, <laughs> I went to, we went to this amazing studio called Studio Mullinetti. Okay. And it was in um, Genova. And funnily enough, I think, I've got a feeling that Simon Climey uses it a lot, used it a lot at the time. Okay. Heard that Kelly Bryan when she she recorded that's right she she recorded out there yeah I've gone to Studio Mullinetti in this beautiful little village it was the best summer of my life well it was early summer actually it was like three months from April to June or something it was early summer but it was just amazing me and the two guys living in this massive villa um, very very old fashioned you know it wasn't it wasn't like over the top it was just very basic Italian but beautiful right on the sea and we made the album there. Um, Elliot Kennedy flew out, uh, you know, the writer. He did a couple of tracks with us. Smash It's Kane did a cover shoot there. We had uh, my sister and brother-in-law. Friends flew out. It was just amazing, right? Oh, brilliant. Had, yeah, it was just the best, as my, um, as I realised later when I had to look at the statements. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, uh, oh, the joy of hindsight. But no, memories that you can't pay for, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you did. <laughs> yeah. So, and then it was like, right, let's go with special kind of something as the first single. You're going to come back. You've lost a bit of weight. You're looking good. You've got a tan. Da, 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 da. Like, you're a bit more mature. We'll put out a special kind of something. It came out. It got great support, a new mature sound. And again, <clears throat> it was like, it has to go top 10. It has to go top 10. It went in at 13. All right, yeah. Which I'd be pleased with a 13 yeah. today. 100%. I think there was so much pressure on those days to, you know, make it, make it top five, top ten, and 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 then um, the second single came out, which was Funky Love, and that went to I think twenty six, and it was just like, oh god, okay, no, it went to thirty two. We went to thirty two, <gasps> and I was, oh, I was gutted. I was like, because I was still getting like. TVs and I was still getting smash hits. We were brilliant. I don't think, to be honest with you, I think without smash hits, I wouldn't have had a, as much success because they just championed me all the time, you know. And then it was like, right, well, we've got one last single to do, and that was Will You Wait for Me, the ballad. And that went in, I think, at 26. And it was like, right, let's get him out to Asia. Because, of course, I didn't really understand all the ins and outs of contracts and, you know, certain things you had to fulfill within, um, you know, the, the first album, the second album. They call it the term or something. Or Okay. Yeah. So I had to fulfill so much to get the third album's advance and all this stuff. It was just okay. okay. our people. Um, and at this point, all my team had left and gone to L.A. because of the Spice Girls' success. 
So all the Virgin people that signed me were no longer there. They were just living in L.A. now and working on the Spice Girls because they'd blown up huge. Okay. Did great in Asia. Did really, 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 really well, you know, all over, um, oh, God, everywhere. You name it, Malaysia, Philippines, Hong Kong. Just crazy. I felt like Elvis out there. It was just, it was just, <laughs> it was just amazing. Um, and sold a lot of records, more than I'd ever sold in England. You know, I think it went okay. like platinum or something. It did really, really well. And came back and um, <clears throat> they basically said, we're going to drop you. No, no. What did they say? They said something like, yeah, we're, we're going to drop you. <laughs> I'm trying to find a nice way of saying it if they said it any other way. But I think it was a case of you're going to be dropped. Okay. And I'm like, what do you mean? I've just like been like Elvis Presley in Asia and sold 500,000 copies of this second album that you've not even put out in England yet. Um, and ugh, see, this is where it gets a bit long-winded, but if you want, this is how it happened. Yeah, yeah. I bumped in purely by chance. I went, I had a little break before this was all being decided what's going to happen to him. I think they wanted to put out one more single and I had a bit of time to figure all this out. And I went to LA and while I was out there, I met this lawyer purely by chance, this New York lawyer, Johnny Pollock, who loved Billy Joel, right? We got out Billy Joel one night in the bar of this hotel, randomly. And I'm getting on the piano, yeah, the piano man, and we're both singing along. And so I start telling him my story, and he's like, well, I said, but all the team left, and da 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 He said, have you ever had anybody look at your contract properly? I said, well, I trust my managers and stuff. He said, let me look. Anyway, he looked at my contract, and he saw that, that because everybody had left, and, and it all went a bit tits up, they'd gone over the option to sign me for my third album. So, in fact, they couldn't just drop me without paying me some money. Okay. Or keep me for the third album, which they weren't going to do, because that would have been pointless. So, to cut a very long story short, we signed an agreement where they paid me a substantial amount of money, and I left the company. And that was the finish of that. The Virgin era was finished. Wow. Yeah. So then you went, so then that, that was when you moved out to L.A.? And that was when I moved out to LA, not because of the Billy Joel lawyer man. I just decided that I had, you know, I had friends out there and I'd been there before. And I just thought, I need a break now. I need to go. I can't do anything in this country. I was embarrassed. I was, I, I, I just, there was no reality shows in those days. You couldn't go in the jungle or do anything like that. You know, I just, I really thought it was totally over. I just thought okay. I was, I'm done. I need what to age go. were you? You, you were? you were probably only about 20 then, were you? I was 21. 21. 21. Yeah. That's a lot to process at 21. <laughs> I mean, at 21, I was... <laughs> I was an absolute disaster at 21 years of age. I couldn't, pro- I couldn't process any sort of, like, life-changing events no. like that at 21. Well, I... You see, I went the other way. So it was like I grew up the opposite way. So that... Okay. Uh, nothing has happened after that. So... I knew that I had. I, I was lucky enough to buy my parents a house, um, so I, I knew that they were safe. They had the house, and they were being looked after. My parents are elderly, you know. They were in the seventies, early seventies at this point, so okay. they were softer. They didn't have to worry. I've got all. Oh, I've got a nice amount of money now. There's nothing worse than being spotted in the street if you're famous and you've got nothing going on, or you're 
you feel like a has been. It's the worst feeling in the world, right? Yeah, hundred like, percent. Oh, what are you up to now? I, you know, where where have you been? Didn't you used to be? Oh, that. that that's where I am at the moment because it's kind of like you know, well, Turin's cancelled. You know, I don't know what's going to happen next. So it's like, and I suppose that's where you do your main stuff is touring, right? But you've done TV stuff, and do you? Act, oh you act- yeah, 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 yeah. I've done bits and pieces, but I mean, I'm I'm not known anywhere else except Ireland. Like it's, it's right, thin, and and it's thin on the ground here. Right. Uh, so I make my money from touring. So no, like no show, no dough, basically. <laughs> so I yeah. Uh, I could be a postman next week, haven't I? <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, I mean, this is it. And and so I just thought, I've got this opportunity to go to LA. I'm going to try it over there. I'm going to try to do some music. I'm going to, you know, I, I had a friend that I knew I could stay with. And I just wanted to run away. And that's exactly what I did. I just, I moved over there. I got, I got the visa. And, um, and it was literally like letting, it was like letting a dog off a lead okay. in a park. <laughs> And just, I just ran and just, don't get me wrong, it wasn't like, you know, um, leaving Las Vegas or whatever. What, what's that, 30 Nights, in, what's the Johnny Depp film? Or oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. It yeah. wasn't like, it wasn't that. I mean, you know, I did have some decorum to begin. Okay. Um, but, yeah, suddenly I was in the sunshine, nobody knew who I was, I could reinvent myself, I could start again, I got an agent, I got a manager, my accent started to go slightly up at the end, you know, oh, like yeah, I had yeah. the panic thing for a while. And everyone, when I call out, they're like, you are. What <laughs> yeah. are you talking about? That was Anthony Kavanagh there. If you want to hear more of this interview where we chat about his life in LA, coming out of the closet, his relationship with Stephen Gagley, and of course, reality TV. It is available as episode 51. In future, two-part episodes will be for premium subscribers and you'll get the first part on the free feed and the second part in the premium subscription feed. But I'll have more information about that in a couple of episodes time. Big thanks to my guest, Kavanagh. You can follow him on all the socials and show him some love for his new blonde look. I think he looks great. I'm Akarod Farrelly. If you want to follow me on Instagram and Twitter, there will be a new episode soon. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Season two of The Kardashians. We're back. Has arrived on Hulu. Here we come going to be insanity. I wish we could have one boring day in this family. On September 22nd. First time trying on my wedding dress. Everything you've heard. I just feel that I'm a fish in a fishbowl. Is just the beginning. Our family grows. First Kylie. Now Chloe. Family. That's our superpower. The Kardashians season two. Streaming September 22nd. Only on Hulu.